We sang a lot about grace this morning, and um, it's good that we're singing about that because one of the things we're talking about, the main subject we're talking about, is just how powerful that grace was in David's life. And so you can see today the title to the message in Life of David. This is the 17th one uh, that we've done. It's amazing that you guys are still here every week. <laughs> 17 sermons on the life of David. I've skipped a few chapters so that we'll be done before Christmas. <clears throat> and No, we'll be done before that. But um, before we do that, I want to remind you guys about the uh, offering uh, bins that are on the sides and in the back. Uh, those are so that during the worship time, uh, you can begin to make offering and giving part of your worship and not just putting it in the back in the bucket at the end. But during the music, during the time, uh, feel free to go and make that part of your worship. I think it's an experience that you guys will enjoy once you start to take advantage of that. So blooms of victory, but seeds of failure. And so to do this, I'm taking the first part of uh, 2 Samuel, uh, of, this, of this chapter, chapter 5, and I'm going to skip some of it and kind of give you a quick overview of some of these things. First of all, I want to look at the bloom of victory, right? We see the bloom of victory in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. David is recognized as king over all of Israel. All the, all the people who are going against him are gone. They're either dead or they've recognized they don't have any standing. And so now, not only is he the king of Judah, he's also the king of all of Israel, and everybody recognizes him. And then we see the Jebusites who owned Jerusalem at the time. Uh, they have this overconfidence. They think, you know what? Our walls around Jerusalem are so good that we can defend it against David's king or David's army with deaf and blind people. And the story is pretty clear. David kicks their butt. And now they have Jerusalem. They're all together as a united kingdom. And that's pretty amazing. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from, from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 17 to 25, the Philistines get crushed again. I mean, David has been making mincemeat of these guys, right? Every time he fights them, he destroys them. And then when he needs help, he somehow convinces them to let him live with them, right? I mean, David just keeps kicking their butt at every turn, manipulating them. It's like, you know, these Philistines, they got to hate this guy. And I guess the Philistines were influenced by their last victory against Saul a few years ago. They had just killed Saul, and they figured, you know what? We, David's now king. We know who he is. We know his strengths. And we, he lived with us for 18 months. Let's go get him now before he gets strong. And so they go, and David says, what should I do, God? Should I kick their butt again? God says, yes, go kick their butt again. So he goes, and he kicks their butts again. And I guess the Philistines probably had some confidence, you know. But think about this. Certainly after living there for 18 months, David had some friends in that camp, right? And they go up against him, and he destroys them. You know, it's probably a really exciting time to be a Jew at this point, right? I mean, it's kind of like being a Florida State fan right now, which is very exciting. It's the last time I'll mention it for 12 months, I promise. <laughs> but right now... David is at the pinnacle of his victorious, celebrative 
life. He's come through the attacks from Satan from when he was a young kid in the field with the lions and the bears trying to kill him. He's come through all of this stuff. He's come through Saul trying to kill him. He's come through the Philistines trying to kill him. He's killed Goliath. He's, he's kind of been able to, to go around and work his way through. Now he's rich. Now he's powerful. He's the king, which God said he would be king. And all of Israel is becoming very strong, very united. They have Jerusalem back. It's a very exciting time to be Jewish. But in the midst of all this bloom of victory and this incredibly exciting time, we begin to see some seeds that will yield as a crop the biggest failure in David's life that would cause complications to reverberate throughout his life for 30 years. <clears throat> in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 11 through 16, we begin to see some of these. I'm going to read this to you. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and he sent cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and he built David a big house. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over all Israel, and he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. And David took more wives from Jerusalem, and after he came to Hebron, he had more sons and more daughters were born, and the names of them were, I'm going to skip them all because they're really hard to say. I mean, I could do it, don't get me wrong, I just don't want to show off. And so <laughs> we're just going to skip over the names of those. But basically what we see here is, the king of Hiram shows that even foreign kings respect David. So David is not just respected by all of Israel now. Even foreign kings recognize, okay, this guy is somebody to be reckoned with. We want to get on his good side. He sends all these cedars, and he decides, I'm going to send my best construction people, and we're going to build David a big house. David is firmly established in the, in the minds of all the people of the region that he is the anointed king. And David knew that God had exalted his kingdom, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of God's people. He knows that. But in verse 13, we see a manifestation of a major character flaw in David. And it says, David took more wives and concubines from Jerusalem. And see, this is where I want to focus you on right now. Because grace is crucial. Not just for the past. Not just for the present. But grace is crucial for our future. I want to read this passage to you in Deuteronomy 17. David knew this truth. And when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you will possess it and you will dwell in it. And then you will say... And then I will say, I will set a, set a king over me, like all the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart, listen to this, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he inquire for himself excesses of gold and silver. 
Isn't it interesting how God knew what would happen if a king got a bunch of wives? This is not to cast any dispersions on wives. Let's just make sure we get that out of the way right now. This is to cast dispersions upon the king. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire excessive gold and silver. See, David had many wives, yet for some reason, later on, that did not keep him from coveting his neighbor's wife. For once men have broken the fence, they will wander aimlessly. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago I taught you about what fences around the Torah meant? And I explained a little bit about the, the dietetic laws, about how you're not supposed to drink milk and meat. In reality, that was a fence because the real law was don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And they were so afraid that they would do that, they said, we're going to set laws that are far away from the real law so we'll never come close to breaking the real law. And what Matthew Henry says in his commentary is this, once man starts breaking down the fences, he begins to wander aimlessly. See, what we see here, guys, is an unraveling thread in David's character. A flaw in the midst of his most victorious and glorious moments of his entire life. See, the signs were there long before he fell in his actual sin with Bathsheba. But instead of focusing on this seed and the failure at birth, because we're going to do that at a later time. We're going to talk about David and Bathsheba and all that, believe me. But the rest of this morning, I don't want to focus on the failure. I want to focus on the grace that never changed in David's life one bit in the midst of the past, the present, and the future. So knowing this we know about David, he has these flaws in his character. We understand he's in a victory. He's on a roll right now. He's kicking everybody's butt. He's getting power. Everybody loves him. He's getting rich. He's on a roll. But in the midst of this, we see this seed of failure that is being sown. But yet David has an interesting relationship with God. I'm going to read to you Psalm 139. Now, we don't know when David wrote Psalm 139. We can guess. But Psalm 139 is actually one of the most powerful psalms besides Psalm 51, which he wrote in repentance for his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 139 is one of the most powerful psalms that David has ever written. Let me read it. <clears throat> oh, Lord, and just as I'm reading this, I'm sorry, let me stop. As I'm reading this, if you're not following along, please really try to focus. Don't let this, these words go in one ear and out the other. Really try to comprehend what David, the psalmist, the king, is saying. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, 
and the light will be my night, even in the darkness. Not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you have formed me in the inward part. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I'm going to stop there for a second. He said the same exact thing in his repentance psalm in Psalm 51. For you have known me in the inward parts, he says. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. He's saying when I was just material and elements, you knew what I was even before I was formed. He's talking about the dirt that makes him up in the depths of the earth. God knew his form. In your book was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. And then the famous part of this psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You see, through this story of the psalm of David, we learn two things about God's grace. And you understand, you can see a lot of similarities. And if you've ever read Psalm 51, you begin to see a lot of similarities between this victorious psalm and I would imagine, I'm guessing, but I'm making an educated guess, that Psalm 139 was written before Psalm 51. In fact, Psalm 139 probably was written around this time in David's life. Some people speculate. It's all speculation. But you can see some of the same messages. You knew every part of me before I was even born. And then when he's praying for forgiveness later, he says, you know the inward parts. and the hidden parts, you make me know wisdom. And then he says, purge me. Cleanse me. But the message is kind of similar. So there's two things we learn about this grace. Number one, God's grace, and I make up that, that last word, so don't get mad at me, but God's grace is not just historic or presentistic. Hey, that's pretty good, come on. It's eternalistic. What is eternalism? Eternalism is a philosophical approach to time which takes the view that all points in time are equally real, past, present, and future. As opposed to some other philosophies that say only what's happening in present is real. What an eternalistic view believes is the past is just as real as the present, which is just as real as the future. That is what God's grace is. It is real in the past, it's real in the present, and it's real before we even know what its effects are. It is gracifying us as we speak in the future. Another made-up word, gracifying. <laughs> Isn't that how interesting, though? I have to make up words because that's how amazing God's grace is. David says there are no words. I can't express it artistically enough is what David says. How well did God know David? Did God know that David was going to fall with Bathsheba? 
I mean, think of all the flaws in David that God had to overlook to love him. Think about, did David do something to earn God's love? Or did God just love him anyway? Did God know where and how you would fall before he chose to transform you? The second thing we see about God's grace is that when applied, not only produces forgiveness, but it produces transparency, vulnerability, honesty, and trust in favor, even when it's completely undeserved. David writes Psalm 139, he says, you know me before I was born, you know me after I'm born, you knew my days, how they were numbered, you knew exactly how they would go off before they even came about. You've known me in the womb, you knew me when I was just dirt bubbling up in the earth. Search me, God, know my heart, see if there's anything wicked in me, and then please, God, lead me in the way of everlasting. David says, I am an open book. I am completely transparent before you, O God. You know everything there is about me. You know all my crap. You know all my glory. You know all my failures. You know all my successes. You know my secret shame that nobody knows, even my wives. You know everything, all of my disgusting filth. You know about my filth that I haven't even gotten filthy with yet. And you still love me? You know I'm going to betray you. You know I'm going to turn my back on you, and yet you still love me? <clears throat> if you're going to hire somebody to do a job, and they're very good at it, but you know three years later they're going to steal from you, you going to hire them? You see what grace is? And so when God's grace is applied to your life, yes, it produces forgiveness, yes, it produces transparency and vulnerability and honesty, but it also produces a trust, even when you know the favor that God is giving you is completely undeserved. That trust is why David could say, search me, know me, tell me. We've brought up this passage a few times in the last several weeks because I think it's just so applicable to what David's relationship with God was like. And remember, what is the real story behind this life of David? Satan hates him, wants to kill him, God loves him, wants to save him. I guess we could just end the series right now, right? That's it. But we won't. Don't worry, I have some more. Can you see how this truth that Paul writes is applicable to David's relationship with God? I mean, can you see? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, there's the eternalistic aspect of grace, amen? Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how Paul lays out the eternalistic version of grace? See, we have this 
sequential way of thinking about it is because we're bound by time. Our thought process and the way we live, we cannot live in the future. We can only live in the present. We cannot live in the past. We can only live in the now. And so because of that, the way we think about God's grace is ah, forgiveness right now, cleansing right now. But that is so limiting. God's grace is forgiveness back then, forgiveness now, and forgiveness for what you don't even know you need forgiveness for. Does that blow your mind or what? Can you see how this truth that Paul writes is applicable to David's relationship with God? I mean, how could David even write Psalm 139 if he did not understand the futuristic aspects of grace? Can you see how David's relationship with God is based upon grace and not merit? Because God knows that David is going to be a colossal failure. Understanding what these seeds would birth later, God knows. God isn't there, boy, I hope David doesn't sleep with Bathsheba. I hope he avoids that. I hope he doesn't take a census when I told him not to. But can't you see, understanding those seeds of failure in David's life, can't that give you confidence in eternalistic grace? Are you ever fearful of what sin you might step into during the remaining years of your life? What shameful moments perhaps await you do you ever think that way? Do you ever think about the fact that there is a possibility because of the seeds of failure that are in your life that one day there could be a massive moral collapse in your life to some degree that brings embarrassment upon you and your family and your church and your God? David knew that. David knew that God knew all about the days to come and the days in the past. Paul knows it. Things present nor things to come can separate us. There is one area where you don't have to fear those failures. One. That is the fear, guys, of God's grace leaving you. Because even when you are in the midst of of perhaps an unprecedented spiritual run of success in your life. Let's say you're doing really good. Even in the midst of that unprecedented run of spiritual success, God sees the seeds of failure in your life that will bloom into catastrophe. Ask Him to search them out while trusting that no matter what they are, He will lead you to the way everlasting so what's the takeaway for us from this let's just make it simple God's grace is for Monday right God's grace is for Tuesday God's grace is for Wednesday God's grace is for Thursday 
Yes, God's, God's grace applied to you this morning and yesterday and last week and maybe last year when you had that moral failure in your life. Yes, that's true. But you know what I would rather us as a church do? I'd rather us stop looking back at how terrible we were and how much God has forgiven us and start looking forward to, I can't believe the grace that God is going to heap upon me tomorrow. And the next day, and the day after that, And if something happens in my life and I really fail him, I have confidence that God is going to douse me and shower me with eternalistic, futuristic grace that will never leave me. Why can I have confidence in it? Two people told me. David, you knew the days before they even happened. And Paul, things present nor things to come will be able to separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. I hope that gives you a little bit of chill up your spine this morning to think about futuristic grace. One day, I'm going to have to cash in, and I know it's going to be there in full force, never wavering. Future grace.